Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. After its loss in the presidential election of 2012, the Republican Party felt it needed to do its own after-action report about what had happened. In the end, it was determined that all was basically okay and that the party just needed to do a little better with Hispanic voters. Enter Jeb Bush. Well, as they say, how did that work out? What we're seeing today is a total repudiation of a Republican establishment that for 40 years has held voters with cultural, racial, and religious issues while delivering nothing of economic value. So that today we understand exactly what's the matter with Kansas. Covering all of this has been my guest, McKay Coppins. McKay Coppins is a senior political writer at BuzzFeed, covering national politics, the Republican Party, and the major figures in the conservative movement. He formerly was a reporter with Newsweek, and he's the author of a new book entitled The Wilderness, Deep Inside the Republican Party's Combative, Contentious, Chaotic Quest to Take Back the White House. McKay Coppins, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Take us back to 2012, the morning after the election, the morning after Mitt Romney's loss, and the the surprise among Republicans, number one, and number two, what they thought they were going to do about it. Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I was was covered Mitt Romney in 2012, so I was in the ballroom in Boston the night, you know, Mitt Romney uh, lost, and and not just Mitt Romney, but Republicans all throughout the country were losing uh, in, you know, their Senate races, their governor's races. Uh, state ballot initiatives that uh, conservatives had supported were uh, were being defeated in landslides in some cases. Uh, so it really did feel like a you know mini apocalypse for the for the Republican Party. Um, and I remember at one point that night on election night, one of the uh, Mitt Romney campaign aides kind of wandered over to me, uh, you know, depressed and you know a little bit buzzed. She had had a few drinks, and <laughs> she she said, you know, if this ticket can't beat this incumbent, then I don't know if Republicans are ever going to win the White House again. <laughs> uh, and of course, that was you know some election night uh, self pity. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, my book opens on election night, and mm-hmm. you go throughout kind of uh, I, I follow all the kind of rising stars in the party that night from. Marco Rubio to, you know, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, uh, Donald Trump, who at the time did not seem like a rising star, but of course he proved everybody wrong. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the initial kind of analysis that, that came out of the, the Republican establishment was, uh, like you said, that the party need to, needed to widen its tent, that it needed to moderate on certain positions like immigration, like same-sex marriage, it needed to, you know, bring in Latinos, bring in at least a portion of African American voters, younger voters, and, and there was kind of a, a, a brief, uh, you know, hallucinatory moment where it seemed like maybe the Republican Party was uh, was ready to sort of move on from its, you know, the Obama era obstructionism. Uh, at least that's what a lot of people see it as, and, and kind of, uh, you know, reinvent itself as a serious party of ideas and governance. Um, Unfortunately, unfortunately for the Republicans, what happened instead was that there was such a huge cast of Republican, you know, strivers, White House aspirants, and there was no, uh, you know, next in line standard bearer. There was no heir apparent, and that's unique for the Republican Party. For really the first time in 40 or 50 years, uh, the party was without, uh, you know, a, a natural leader to kind of try to rally the party around him uh, or her. And so instead, you have this power vacuum or, you know, leadership vacuum. And fast forward, you know, three years, and we find ourselves where we are, which is a figure like Donald Trump was able to 
kind of enter the process and hijack the party. And, and you know, at this point, I, I think the Republicans I talked to have no idea if there's any way to, you know, take it back from him. Jeb Bush was supposed to be kind of the heir apparent. I mean, he emerged as somebody that seemed like the safe way to go. When did, how did that evolve? Well, and, and you're right. I mean, if there was somebody who would be seen as an heir apparent, it was Jeb Bush because he was part of, uh, you know, the Bush dynasty, because he had been a popular and successful governor uh, for eight years in Florida. Um, but it's funny, I, I report on election night, uh, I, you know, election night 2012, Jeb was, you know, fielding emails and, and uh, text messages from uh, longtime Bush family supporters and, and his own, you know, friends and, and supporters who were basically begging him to, you know, get in the game now. They were like, all right, Mitt's gone, you know, the Republican Party's in chaos, we need you to come and save the day. And, and Jeb really was not that interested. <laughs> he kind of, you know, sat back and and kind of felt like, you know, he was he was entering sort of a semi-retirement. He was kind of settling into the role of elder statesman. He was making good money for the first time in his life. Um, and, and he kind of felt like, he, you know, he was he was content to sit back and let the more ambitious uh, strivers in the party try to figure it out. Uh, but with the knowledge, or with the belief at least, that if he ultimately decided to get into the race, that the Republican establishment would quickly line up behind him. Now, obviously, you know, go back to early 2015, so early last year, it looked like that was happening. I mean, when, when he f finally did decide to get into the race, he had, you know, uh, he raised $100 million for his super PAC. He was, you know, piling up establishment endorsements. It looked like he was ready to run away with the, with the nomination. And I, I report that his campaign or his political team at the time was actually aggressively trying to clear the Republican field for him and, and keep all, you know, serious competitors out. Um, and, and they did so sort of ruthlessly in some cases, including by spreading, you know, unsubstantiated rumors about Marco Rubio uh, saying that he has mistresses or, you know, skeletons in his closet. Uh, and, but, you know, this is a, this, he looked like a juggernaut. And, and you remember a year ago, the political pundits, the, the consensus was that Jeb Bush was a juggernaut and his team was going to come in and just take over the primaries. But I think what happened, I mean, it, you've, you've seen it. Anybody who's seen Jeb Bush campaign can get a sense pretty quickly that while his team may be pretty driven and he may have some very loyal supporters who are very driven, Jeb Bush himself seems kind of miserable when he's <laughs> out on the campaign trail. He never seems to like it that much. He seems kind of you know, to do, hold the whole process in sort of disdain, feels like it's unseemly. Uh, and I, I think that that's shown through. And, and, you know, a lot of voters aren't really inspired by him. As he started to fade early on before the rise of Trump and, and others, there was a brief moment in time where there was a lot of fascination with Mitt Romney running again. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, and that, that's an interesting uh, an interesting story in my book. There, There's a... Uh, a period, you know, early in in early 2015, Mitt Romney actually decided to openly flirt with the idea of, of running for a third time for president, entering the race in 2016, uh, and, and it, that lasted about a month. Uh, and at, the t at, at that time, Jeb Bush had not yet faded; he was still at its peak. And he he and his team moved very aggressively to kind of gobble up Mitt Romney's loyal donors and his uh, his the operatives who had worked on his campaign in the past. Uh, and basically made it so that Mitt Romney felt like, 
you know, there was no way he could run a real campaign because Jeb looked so uh, dominant at the time. Jeb starts to fade, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the ensuing months. And uh, what I report is that the most loyal, you know, Mitt Romney supporters, kind of the wealthy donors and longtime personal friends and aides and confidants who were in his orbit, uh, begin to map out a, a strategy. And, and, uh, <laughs> and it seems far-fetched, but increasingly with the chaos that's kind of gripped this primary season, it, it might not be. So I, I report that there actually is a strategy mapped out by some high-level Romney supporters and donors that would have uh, Mitt Romney drafted from the convention floor in Cleveland this summer uh, if we get to the point where the Republican Party holds its nominating convention without an obvious nominee. So, you know, the field is still very big at this point. Uh, if it's, it's, it's not implausible, or at least not impossible, that we'll get to Cleveland next, you know, this summer, and there won't be anybody who's kind of clinched the nomination, uh, or it's possible that Donald Trump looks like he's ready to clinch the nomination. And I'm told that in either of those scenarios, there will be some high-level people in the Republican establishment who are Romney supporters who will try to draft him from the floor, uh, believing that he is, you know, kind of an elder statesman of the party. He's been fully vetted. The Republicans know him. And if they need kind of a unifying force at the last minute, he will be their guy. Now, there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of that strategy, but I can tell you that Mitt Romney knows about this. People have brought this idea to him. And while he says publicly that he doesn't want to, you know, run again, he has no plans to run again, uh, privately he has not waved to the mosque completely. He has, uh, you know, left that door open. And so, you know, look for uh, potential fireworks in, in the nominating convention in Cleveland, I guess. One of the most off-repeated phrases these days, and it shouldn't be turned into a drinking game because we'd all be under the desk, <laughs> is the phrase, the Republican establishment. What does right. that mean, McKay? <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Well, so traditionally that term was used in kind of politico speak um, to mean kind of a loose coalition of uh, you know the the official Republican Party committees and organizations, uh, you know affluent or wealthy donors, uh, and you know business interests, corporate interests, uh, you know basically. The mainstream of the Republican Party, uh, the, the institutions that support that. Um, and, and so that, you know, traditionally that they were the ones who kind of ran the party, right? The RNC, the Republican National Committee, the, the various Washington organizations, they, they held a lot of sway over fundraising, over, uh, you know, who, who got to participate in the process. Uh, and, and for a while, you know, there was a lot of griping forever, especially from kind of the conservative grassroots, that these, you know, fat cats in Washington uh, and New York were kind of uh, running the show and ba from back rooms and, you know, <laughs> freezing them out. Uh, and there was probably some truth to that. But what's happened since basically 2010 uh, in kind of the Obama era is that, you know, the Supreme Court essentially deregulated vast amounts of political money, made it possible for, uh, you know, for billionaires to kind of run their own political parties, basically. Uh, and then also, you know, the rise of the Internet, of social media, uh, basically the democratization of the media landscape has made it so that, there, you know, 
the the old old guard Republican establishment, um, you know, those, those institutions that I talked about, don't really have the same sway that they used to in the party. And what's happened is that, uh, you know, we, we're kind of in a Wild West period where, the, you know, a candidate who has one billionaire friend can stick around in, in a presidential race and kind of wreak havoc. In the case of Donald Trump, he is the billionaire, and he can stick around for as long as he wants. But one really interesting thing that's happened is that amid all of this, a kind of right-wing counter-establishment has risen up uh, that you know, comprises uh, you know, right-wing websites, talk radio stations, uh, some very kind of weaponized and well-funded outside political groups. And, and altogether, this right-wing counter-establishment uh, it has just about as much influence, if not more, as the old kind of Republican Party, the old GOP, uh, old guard. And, and that's a, it, for a lot of, you know, more moderate Republicans and certainly a lot of kind of wealthy uh, corporate Republicans. That's a frightening prospect because you don't only have people like Donald Trump who can take advantage of that. You have somebody like Ted Cruz, who's currently in second place in most of the polls. Uh, and also kind of has built his career on wreaking havoc in Washington. So for a lot of Republicans, that's a frightening prospect to lose control of the process like that. Where do Republicans in Congress fit into this equation right now? If you look at at the number of endorsements from members of Congress, members of the Senate, it's probably lower than it's ever been in terms of this campaign. Right. Well, and and the problem is that in the case of Donald Trump— Almost everyone in Congress, you know, genuinely believes, every Republican in Congress genuinely believes that Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination would be, you know, the actual <laughs> political apocalypse for their party. That not only would they lose the general, general election, they would probably lose uh, a great number of Senate seats, uh, House, you know, House seats. There's a very good chance that they would lose Congress. Uh, and, you know, and you talk to a lot of people in the, in Congress who believe that Trump would, you know, lastingly damage the reputation and kind of public image of the Republican Party. So that so you don't see a lot of them rushing to Donald Trump. And you know, to be fair, Donald Trump isn't courting their endorsements. He just doesn't care that much. Mm-hmm. Then there's Ted Cruz, who's in Congress. He's in the Senate, but he has burnt so many bridges over the course of his career. I write in the book about uh, his his crusade to defund Obamacare in 2013, which uh, you'll remember ended up uh, shutting down the government for 14 days. And, you know, publicly, the Tea Party and a lot of conservative activists saw Cruz as a hero because he was kind of taking it to the, the, you know, to Washington, to the insiders, to the corrupt elites, right? Uh, but I report and I talked to, you know, I've interviewed Cruz. I've interviewed a lot of Cruz's aides. This book is based on over 300 interviews. Uh, but I report that Cruz actually was pretty cynical about that whole thing. One of his uh, aides actually told me several days into the government shutdown that the senator knew perfectly well that he was never going to defund Obamacare, that it was kind of just a good message, and that they didn't go with a more nuanced and more honest message because it wouldn't make for a good Twitter hashtag. That was the quote. Uh, and so when you have stories like that, that kind of bouncing around the Capitol, there aren't a lot of people in Congress, a lot of Republicans in Congress, who are rushing to endorse Ted Cruz either. 
And so it is kind of a fascinating dynamic where the two front runners have very little institutional support from the party, very few endorsements from established, you know, from from actual elected officials. And as it turns out, they don't really need them. Are there any, have you found in your reporting and in the many interviews that you did for this book, are there any wise men in the Republican Party right now who understand exactly how the party got to where it is today? Well, I, I, there's a lot of disagreement. Um, I will say that there are definitely are Republicans who are pretty open, you know, clear-eyed about, you know, what's happened in their party. Are they willing to admit it on the record in interviews with a journalist? <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, but, you know, you do have people like Jeb Bush who, uh, you know, for all the, whatever you think of his brother, whatever you think of his, uh, his you know, politics, he's, he's fairly, uh, you know, clear-eyed about the fact that kind of the, the nativist uh, and arguably xenophobic, xenophobic kind of strain in the party has really, uh, you know, polluted and, and uh, made toxic a lot of the, uh, of the GOP. Um, this is a man, remember, Jeb Bush, who's married, married a Mexican girl when he was a, still a teenager, uh, whose kids, you know, grew up speaking Spanish uh, and having people, you know, fling uh, ethnic slurs at them when they were on playing baseball in Little League. So this is a guy who's, you know, he, he understands a lot of what the, you know, a lot of what people are turned off by in the Republican Party and conservative politics. But it's, you know, it's hard because, so that, that's Jeb Bush. Paul Ryan, current Speaker of the House, I write about how after 2012 he kind of had a, uh, a sort of crisis of conscience almost and, and spends, the, uh, spends the, you know, the next two years uh, visiting inner city, uh, poor kind of inner city areas, meeting with uh, ministers and halfway houses and, Kind of trying to see if there's some conservative vision to address the ail, you know, the problems of poverty. I actually went on one of those trips with him. So, so you know, there are some Republicans who seem to at least be moving in the right direction, or they understand generally what's going on with the party. But the the politics are just so tough in in this current climate to get, you know, to actually do anything to address those issues. Uh, you know, when you have somebody like Donald Trump who's dominating the polls and has been for seven months, it's hard for Jeb Bush or Paul Ryan to come out with kind of a very thoughtful, nuanced um, set of policy proposals to address the problems of immigration or, or poverty uh, and not be kind of laughed off the stage. And, uh, and I think that's what you see a lot of these guys contending with. And, of course, it's a problem that goes to the heart of class warfare as much as it does mm-hmm. politics. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, and well, and actually, that that is one of the things that uh, you know a lot of the people I've talked to in the party uh, do recognize about Trump's appeal and, and and kind of realize that there is something to learn from him because, you know, behind all the nationalism and the the Muslim bashing and the and the other stuff that he does, there is a fundamental appeal to kind of the white working class, and, and, and that's kind of Trump's, you know, signature base. Um, and what he's done is, uh, is understand and channel the anxieties and grievance uh, and anger of the, uh, of the working class and middle class 
you know, toward kind of the plutocracy and, and the wealthy and those people who have long kind of been in charge of the Republican Party or been the face of the Republican Party. And so, you know, I think that there, there's a case to be made that, you know, Trump actually does maybe represent some kind of uh, constructive future for the Republican Party, not in, not in the case of, you know, not in the sense that they should be mimicking his rhetoric or his attitude or anything, but maybe they need to be targeting the demographic that is, you know, flocking to Trump now, uh, it, you know, but doing so in a way that doesn't alienate the rest of the country. And it really does go back to the heart of this what's the matter with Kansas discussion, because mm-hmm. it's really a party that, that it, particularly in terms of that white working class, was held together based upon cultural issues, economic issues, social issues, racial issues, and no real economic gain was delivered in return. Well, right. I mean, look, the... the, the... The fundamental, and, and this is recognized by a lot of the party at this point, the fundamental problem the party faces is that the old demographic uh, makeup of the country was made, you know, was conducive to Republican victories, right? Um, the, but the Obama coalition, the, what, what Democrats call and a lot of political uh, observers call the coalition of the ascendant, um, you know that that is what the party or what the country is looking more and more like. And if the country and if Republicans can't figure out how to appeal to those people, then they're not going to have much of an electoral future at the national level. You could fi- see uh, a scenario where Republicans, uh, you know, shrink into a kind of regional party where they win con- congressional seats and governorships in uh, in the South and in parts of the Midwest and Mountain West. Uh, but, you know, never again have a national coalition uh, that enables them to take back the White House. That's, you know, kind of the nightmare scenario that Republican leaders are looking at. Um, but, you know, with, with people like Trump taking, <laughs> taking the lead, uh, you know, I guess a lot of them feel like that's probably where they're headed unless something dramatic changes. Has the establishment, in your view and in your reporting, has the establishment essentially given up right now and just hopes that it can pick up the pieces out of the wreckage of 2016? You know, I'm shocked, I have to say, at the degree to which the Republican establishment and the Republican donor class, who also, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of despise Trump, have just done nothing to take on Trump, really. I mean, there for months, I wrote about this at BuzzFeed last week, for months there was this idea that had been kind of bouncing around political circles and certainly in the Republican Party that, you know, Trump would ultimately fade or flame out on his own, right? That there's no way this would last. But they all kind of, uh, Republican leaders and Washington Republicans in general, kind of uh, took, took solace or comfort in the, in the idea that if that didn't happen for some reason, eventually a kind of cavalry would come to the rescue that would can, you know, uh, be composed of super PACs and you know, well-funded political organizations and, and opposition campaigns that would sort of carpet bomb Iowa and New Hampshire with, uh, with attack ads. Um, and and uh, and basically knock Trump out of the race before things got too serious, right? Um, not only did that not happen, we're right now nine or ten days out from the Iowa caucuses, and almost nothing is being spent uh, is being spent on the air, uh, you know, on TV, on radio to attack Trump. 
there, there was just a report that Jeb Bush's super PAC, the super PAC supporting Jeb Bush, has spent $20 million since the first mm-hmm. week of December uh, airing attack ads against Marco Rubio. Um, they have spent almost nothing airing attack ads against Donald Trump. Uh, it, it is kind of surprising to me and, and to a lot of kind of anti-Trump Republicans uh, that, that, you know, the cavalry never came. There was the, the, those, those people who were supposed to save the party from Trump never showed up. And, and, and now you're seeing reports, the Washington Post reported last week as well, that some Republican donors have kind of given in and are now trying to get into Trump's orbit, uh, you know, trying to see if they can hurry and, and curry favor with him because it looks like he might be the nominee now. I mean, that, to me, that kind of exposes the, the cowardice and uh, ultimate, ultimately kind of the lack of principle that a lot of uh, those people in the Republican establishment and the donor class uh, have. You know, they, they're, not, they're ultimately out looking out for their own self-interest uh, and not really looking out for the, the party in general and kind of the future of republicanism. And finally, what does the party look like if Trump becomes the nominee? Well, I think if, you know, the, the, I think at that point you will see, if he, he absolutely wins the nomination, I think you'll see uh, the RNC and, you know, certain elements of the Republican establishment do their duty, kind of hold their nose and try to get behind him. Um, I think you will see a lot of kind of suburban Republicans, uh, you know, sort of chamber of commerce types who will stay home on Election Day in, uh, in 2016. Uh, I, I even talked to some Republicans who are kind of very, you know, consistent uh, Republican voters who say they'll actually go and vote for Hillary to make sure that Trump doesn't be actually become president. Um, you know, I... I, I see it as very unlikely that Donald Trump could beat Hillary Clinton um, in the not, you know, in, in November. Uh, and, but you could argue, and there is the, the, the silver lining argument, is that maybe a Donald Trump win, um, a uh, Donald Trump nomination will finally put to rest this idea that conservatives and grassroots people have been floating that uh, that to win the nomination, Republicans need to stop nominating moderates like Mitt Romney and John McCain and, and really nominate a, uh, a brawler like Trump. Uh, if Trump finally gets the nomination and loses, uh, a lot of Republican leaders I, I talk to say hopefully that will kind of de- disprove that theory and they can go back to the project of reinventing the party for the 21st century. McKay Coppins. His book is The Wilderness, Deep Inside the Republican Party's Combative, Contentious, Chaotic Quest to Take Back the White House. McKay, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 